Jeff Nyquist, and this is the StrategicCrisis.com podcast for the week of December 14th, uh, 2009, and with me is my special guest, Jan Lamprecht from South Africa. We're going to talk about local political conditions in South Africa. South Africa is a pretty strategic country, isn't it, Jan? Yes, in African terms, it's probably... There are three really important African countries uh, as far as America and the West is concerned. South Africa, the Congo, um, and Nigeria. The Congo being now called the DRC. And these countries are important because of their raw materials, is that right? Pretty much, pretty much. I think in South Africa's case, it's also the fact that its position in terms of um, the... the um, trading routes and so forth, because the, the most Cape, of the, the world's oil... The yes, Cape, the Cape Sea route, route, most of those big oil tankers going to Europe from the Middle East have to go... <laughs> they, they're too big to go South through the, the Suez Canal, so they have to go down under Africa. Mind, yes. Mind you, Jeff, another topic that we've never touched on that, that just comes to mind now. I was watching some very interesting documentaries about how piracy, how piracy has grown to be the problem that it is. And if we don't talk about it today, we must make an effort to talk about it sometime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, the, when I was having a look at it, I could see that you know a lot of this liberal response uh, from the West is actually to blame for why piracy is the problem it is today. Sure, because piracy, when the British Navy was out there, and their response was to go in and hang everybody right off the bat, and the yeah. piracy couldn't possibly pay. They'd hunt you down to the to the uh, last place on earth, and they would dig you out and, and eliminate you. Today, we allow these pirates to exist in these areas, and we don't go in and we don't clean them out. Yeah. I don't quite and understand have, that. And have you seen how completely ridiculous it gets? Um I, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe what I was seeing when they were showing a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember when an American Navy ship was actually towing a pirate vessel which had captives on it? No, I didn't catch that. Okay, well, let me tell you what happened because you almost can't believe this. These pirates captured some Americans and they had them on their little pirate vessel. Mm-hmm. And the American Navy came. And instead of killing the pirates or doing anything like that, they actually towed the pirates and promised not to harm them while the pirates were holding these people hostage. Hmm. And this carried on for a day or two. I don't know if they eventually managed to do something to save them, um, but it was <laughs> its quite bizarre, really. It's no wonder piracy is just going to get worse. <clears throat> but anyway... Yeah, you yeah, know, it's it's everything seems to be getting worse. Uh, how's the economy in South Africa doing now? You know, we're starting to, we're still feeling the pinch from what's happened at your end. Um, in in recent weeks, our newspapers have all been reporting that the recession has come to an end. Oh, the Finally, same uh huh, yeah. it's over. It's well, that's well, we had something like 0.4 percent growth for the first for a quarter, and then they do, were very quick to say, well, the recession is over, that's it, um, you know, nothing to worry about. 
But shortly thereafter, Jeff, there was a news report that said for the first time in 43 years in South Africa, the demand for credit has dropped. For the first time in 43 years. And, um, yeah, so as That's far as I'm concerned... you're still having a deflationary depression. Well, I still think that I'm not, I'm not even convinced that the recession is over myself. You know, I'm still asking the question as to whether we're not watching some kind of bear market rally or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not buying into that at the moment. I'm still very much a skeptic on all fronts. Because from what I just see and hear from my friends, I'm still hearing of people getting, uh, in South Africa, they don't, they don't fire people. The term is retrench. And I know, and, and various friends of mine have, have lost their jobs in recent months. Hmm. And, uh, I've still not heard anything that really is positive for any, anybody. The bank that I work for is still downsizing and re, uh, and, and rearranging itself. So <clears throat> I'm not convinced that anything's better yet. Well, the, that indication that uh, you cited with uh, credit, the demand for credit going down, means that people don't want to spend their money. They don't want to invest their money by making a loan and starting a business or buying a house. Yes. So that means that you're still prices are still uh, there's downward pressure on prices and wages, and that means more layoffs. And the same same thing you could say is going on here. It depends. This is a big country, so there's different regional, uh, you know, uh, variants. Trends. Yeah, yeah, trends in different regions. I mean, you go to Florida or Hawaii, which depend on tourism, and it's just uh, crushing. You, the hotels and restaurants, amusement parks, businesses down. Uh, people are losing their jobs, losing their businesses. I mean, <clears throat> it's uh, it's quite sad. You go to a state that is. Uh, different than that, perhaps uh, uh, Iowa or uh, well, not Nebraska. I understand Nebraska was doing better. Um, some of these, uh, it's interesting when you look at the political map, the red states and the blue states, the red states being conservative states, and yeah. the blue states being the liberal states, the red states tend to be doing better than the blue states. Oh, really? Yeah. That's good. And I think it has to do with the attitude. I mean, the people that got most carried away with this uh, credit inflation were people who had a more liberal political outlook. People uh-huh. who are more conservative tend to already be into saving their money and yeah. investing more conservatively. So yeah. uh, in a way you could say that uh, liberalism is a bad economic trend that uh, promotes yeah. uh, but if you think about it, it promotes a sort of fantasy world about the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're all going to be uh, uh, classless, sexless, and free. You know, well, not yes. sexless, but you know what I mean. Unisex. I think <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna all. What's it? Metrosexual. Med, we're, yes, we're all going to be classless, <laughs> metrosexual, and free um, of all the hang-ups that bothered our parents. Um, yes. I don't, uh, I don't think that it's working out so well for them so far, um, with, uh, with the, with their kids, whatever those that have had kids, their kids turning out to, to hate them and the uh, the market's going south. I think most of them have lost their retirements. And so they're going to have to work till they're well, five. They should be so lucky to live so long. 
<laughs> That's well said. I actually have some comments on that. The first one about the kids. I was having some discussions with friends of mine about about the younger people that I work with. I'm talking the younger whites that I'm working with. And I was saying to my to my friends that in this time of hardship and knuckling down and trying to cut costs, it seems as if the youth have been so brought up that they they just can't conceive of a time when things actually break down. It's as if they are so imbued with this belief that everything is just always onwards and upwards, and they're just not prepared for the opposite. Yeah, a lot of the people here, I would say, there's also in America, there's a uh, a psychology that may have existed in South Africa before uh, Mandela took power, and that is that, that Americans think that not only is the uh, economic mechanism kind of a, a, a fountain of plenty, an ever-filled purse, that there's always going to be wealth flowing out of it, but they also believe the country's invincible, that no enemy ah. is ever going to overpower us, that nobody <laughs> really wants to or would dare to try. And uh, this is a, a major mistake because, of course, the United States is disarming. I don't know if I had a chance to talk to you about this, but the U.S. No. nuclear arsenal is basically breaking down. In what way? Uh, the warheads are old. Uh, three years ago, well, actually two, a little more than two, two and a half years ago, President Bush, who was in an office, <clears throat> proposed this renewable uh, replacement warhead program for the nuclear warheads because the U.S. nuclear warheads were basically uh, overaged and were deteriorating so rapidly that they could see that in two, three years they were going to be unreliable. You know, we haven't tested a nuclear warhead in this country for 17 years. Okay. They have okay. some kind of virtual testing that they do. Um, are you there? Yes, I'm oh, here. I just heard a, a, a funny sound like you disconnected. But uh, a virtual... Uh, we have these virtual tests on computers, and I've heard experts yes. say that yeah, it's not the same as a real test. And... Um, uh, the, the Democrats got control of Congress in the 2006 elections. So in 2007, when the Bush administration needed this program to be funded, um, people like Dianne Feinstein, senator from California here, and others yeah. on the House side were dead set against it, blocked it. It didn't happen in 2007. The Bush administration came back in 2008. It didn't happen again. Uh, a year ago last month, Defense Secretary Robert Gates made an interesting statement. He said, um, if we don't get this renewable replacement warhead uh, soon, then in a year from now, our nuclear arsenal will be unreliable. Those were his words. And of course, Obama won the election last year, came into power in last January. Gates went to him a uh, month or two into his term and said, all right, we need the replacement, you know, the renewable replacement warhead. We need it to be funded. We need your support. And the president said, no way. I'm never going to support that. Uh. So America's nuclear arsenal is rotting. In fact, it's created some alarm in countries like Japan, Korea, some of the European countries where they're going, there's not going to be an American nuclear umbrella. Now, I don't. I know the French and, and the British and others are talking amongst themselves. I've heard it said by people who yeah. are in the know that they're talking about building new warheads to 
can sort of strengthen their nuclear arsenal when ours goes away. But what are we going to do here? Be under the British or French nuclear umbrella? How are we going to be protected? Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Um, and then the president wanting to have a zero option, a zero nuclear option. I mean, if the United States, and I can tell you this, Jan, if the United States is not a nuclear power, you talk about hardship. This country will be destroyed. Yes. You know, Jeff, <clears throat> I saw when Obama was saying something earlier this year about, um, didn't he say he wants to get rid of, get create a nuclear-free world? Yes. You know, I actually wrote a piece on my website about this, and I said that this is complete insanity of the highest order. You know, the moment you take stuff like that away, you are begging for somebody else to take your place. There are so many countries out there that could build nuclear warheads, and they would they would be much more irresponsible about it, and they would use it against your country or as a threat or as a means of um, twisting twisting your arm with foreign policy. You know, I just think, I think when it comes to the whole nuclear issue, all these greenies and closet communists and all these types who, who dream of this nuclear-free world, these people are completely insane. You know, nuclear energy is here to stay, and nuclear science is here to stay. And I keep saying to people that, you know what? Nu nuclear power and nuclear science is the greatest invention of mankind. And it doesn't matter whether it's got destructive capability. All sorts of science has got destructive capability. The fact of the matter is this type of science needs to be researched, it has got lots of uses, especially for space exploration and all sorts of things. And this idea that you're going to take this genie and put it back into the bottle, this is craziness. You, you need to accept that nuclear power and nuclear science is here, work with it responsibly, and you know deal with it in a sane and adult manner. This idea that you're just going to take it away and everything's going to be great, is complete nonsense. In fact, if you take it away, you're inviting trouble. Yeah, that's right, because we haven't had a World War III because of the nuclear balance of terror. If you even removed that balance of terror and made it possible to unleash conventional wars <laughs> on a large scale, that would probably begin to occur. And, and yes. the thing is, is that, you know, it's, it's much easier for Americans to live in a world where all right, if you blow us up, we'll blow you up. And the other people look at the option and go, okay, we're not going to leave the Americans alone. So exactly. we haven't had to sacrifice our... In fact, it's one of the reasons we've become this hedonistic shopping mall regime. Yes. But you see, we're so soft now. You remove yes. these nuclear weapons. I mean, like the Chinese and Russians aren't going to cheat. They've cheated on every single arms control agreement they've ever signed. They've been caught. Yes. We have it. It's a record. Uh, people don't seem to do their homework and, and find out about this sort of thing, but they do. Uh, we continually get defectors from Russia and from the former Soviet Union before that saying, yes, they're working on a super plague uh, bacteria, they're working on uh, a new strains of smallpox, um, they're working on a new generation of nuclear warheads. I mean, 
Russia's got new types of nuclear weapons that we know nothing or almost nothing about right now. Really? What kinds yes. of weapons? They've created a super EMP nuclear weapon. Uh, okay. And uh, this is one where you can detonate it over the middle of North America and send I'm us back you. into the 19th century. Yeah, send you back into the <laughs> send you back to where South Africa is. And I, uh, I, I happen to know Peter Vincent Pry, who is on the EMP Commission here in the U.S. And yeah. if you read the findings or the study, the testimony of the EMP Commission here in the United States, which, by the way, they got rid of it a year ago this month, they said that within a year, within one year of this uh, blast going off over North America, uh, four-fifths of the population here would be dead. Okay. And the bomb, the bomb itself would kill no people. It would just destroy electronic infrastructure. Yes. But it's because and of the breakdown of this infrastructure that we so depend on would cause hmm. social chaos, a breakdown of food distribution. I mean, people would literally be forced to eat each other. Yes. You know, Jeff, even in, even in Africa where we are much more backward compared to you, I mean, I work with technology and, uh, in the banking group that I work for, which employs 30,000 people, I, I'm involved in telephony and computer systems related to that. And, you know, I can tell you that even just in our society, if we had to have an EMP explosion, we would be sent back to the Stone Age in no time at all. And virtually nothing would function because you have no idea, even in a society as like ours, which is much more backward than yours, you have no idea the dependency we have on computers. It is absolutely incredible. And, and you know, whether it goes from, from your cell phone to your motor car uh, to every almost every gadget in your house is in one way or the other dependent on electronics. Yeah. Yeah, and people <laughs> sort of treat this sort of stuff as science fiction, but it's not. The Russians developed these super EMP nuclear weapon. And um, a few years ago, some Russian generals came to the United States on invitation, and they testified yeah. to uh, to our officials. I think it was to a, a committee in Congress. Uh, they testified that the people who had built the EMP bomb in Russia, the Russian scientists, went to North Korea. And that these North Korean nuclear tests, which we hear about, that have, that are very low-yield tests, uh, that that they're low yield because they're putting out that type of radiation that EMP ah, so that the, okay. the the two or three ICBMs that North Korea have has are all they need. North Korea yeah. doesn't need to make a thousand uh, nuclear missiles, which would be beyond its capacity, with the thousands of warheads to nuke the United States. They just need one bomb to successfully make it. Uh, you know, uh, fifty miles up over the middle of North America and detonated, and we're done for. You might as well have dropped a thousand nuclear weapon bombs. Yes, exactly. Well, it just goes to show how vulnerable your society is, and the more advanced you are, how your vulnerability is going to increase to this kind of thing. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the Titanic. Um, yeah. People thought, here's this most modern, sophisticated ship. Why do we need to put all these lifeboats on it? How is it going to possibly sink? Well, that was a lack yes. of imagination on their part. Uh, just because you've made something more advanced and sophisticated doesn't mean it doesn't have vulnerability. Yes. 
And Jeff, you know, if you look at history, I mean, empires have, there is no empire and no political system in the history of the world that's lasted very long. All of these systems are very, very vulnerable. And just because you're big doesn't mean that you, you, you're not going to fall. In fact, the fact that you're big may be even more reason why you will fall because you'll have so many enemies and they're all just waiting. Yeah, well, the United States does have enemies, um, and this is what I talk about all the time, and maybe we could talk about in relation to South Africa, too, what's going on there. But you got China yes. and you got Russia. These are countries yes. that are building major military power. I mean, China has the largest conventional armed forces in the world. Russia probably is second in conventional armed forces behind China. You've right. got... Um, You've got Russia with the largest nuclear forces in the world. There's no doubt about that. And the most sophisticated and advanced nuclear forces in the world. It's not a secret that Russia wants to dominate Europe and the Middle East, that China wants to dominate East Asia and the Pacific region. The reason that these two countries cannot uh, enjoy the dominion that they would otherwise have, that they would naturally possess, is that the United States... The policy of the United States since World War II has been to prevent the rise of a domineering totalitarian power in uh, the Eurasian uh, area. Whether it, you know, we fought Japan to 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 keep Asia from being dominated by by a great power, we fought Nazi Germany to prevent Europe from being dominated by a great power. So uh, the United States is is really created this international system of prosperity and security that has really been unprecedented uh, in, in, in modern times. I mean, it's the British Navy did a similar thing, but you had a lot of instability and a lot of wars um, between European powers in the past. We had World War I and World War II. There was the yeah. Franco-Prussian War and then the Napoleonic Wars in the earlier part of the, the uh, ni um, 19th century. So it, it's, it's, people don't quite realize that when things become fluid, so to speak, when uh, yes. when when powers start to armies start to march and powers start to grab for more, uh, you have tremendous instability and economic efficiency breaks down. Well, now yes. we've just been talking about this EMP weapon, just one weapon. You talk about biological weapons. You know what's really sinister about biological weapons is that a country could attack the United States with a biological weapon and we wouldn't know who was doing it. Okay. Okay. How, how would you tell? You're you're getting sick. You've caught a virus from somebody, but how can you possibly tell who made it? I yes. mean, right now in the United States, you know, in the last few years, and I, you know, I'm I'm 51 years old, and so I've lived a long time in in terms of getting colds, getting getting flus and stuff. Well, you know, in yeah. the last few years, when you get a cold, it doesn't last one week anymore. You get a cold and you got it for three weeks, and then it comes back yes. a month or two later. I mean, this yes. is not the same kind of virus that we were now is has is this merely a mutation or is somebody been working on the common cold okay or on or our immune systems busy breaking down yeah um well what, what i would say uh first of all is that there there's been a big problem in development of biological weapons because in nature the more virulent a microorganism the less contagious it is Okay. And the more contagious it, it is, the less virulent. So what you want is you okay. want you want a, a common cold. You want a common cold type virus 
that will yeah. going to kill people. That is, it's okay. as communicable as a common cold and as lethal as anthrax. Okay. Yeah, because killing, killing also in terms of weaponry, killing might not also be the most efficient thing you want to do. You you might just want to hospitalize as much of the population as you can. Mm -hmm. That's true too. That, because it's... in terms in terms of cost, I remember when I remember when my brother was fighting in Rhodesia, he said to me that um, a lot of the communist weaponry, a lot of the Russian weaponry and stuff. They were they were more concerned about injuring soldiers than killing them, because mm. they reckon that we spend much more money um, trying to uh, to nurse somebody back to health. Uh, so they'd rather injure people because of the economic cost associated with uh, with uh, those who are injured, yeah, as opposed to those who are dead. That's diabolical, absolutely it's, diabolical, to think like see, that. But you see, that's how people think in this kind of game, and it's a vicious, it's a vicious, it's a vicious game. But it is survival of the fittest, you know, Jeff. And that's you what, it, that's what, it, and and that's what, sorry, Jeff, but that's what that's what politics boils down to. People fight each other, and people fight for domination. And the world has always been this way, and it's going to be this way till the end of till the end of humanity. <clears throat> Yeah, people aren't going to stop. No, it's true. Uh, if all you have to do is read ancient history, and then yes. compare it to modern history, and you go, well, there's not been any real change. We've got more sophisticated weapons. We've got books with bigger ideas, bigger ideas in them, but we're still the same Homo sapiens we were 2,000 years ago. Jeff, I am so in agreement with you on that. And if people think that pe that humans have changed. Then you will see there will come a point with where another kind of human is going to come, and he's he's going to be he's going to be more ruthless and more determined, and he's going to defeat those who are weak. You know, when I sit and look at the Roman Empire, there was one thing that I I I, I saw once on a documentary that really got me thinking. Um, they were talking about how Christianity affected the Romans. The Romans were a very much a fighting type of a society. They were firm. They didn't believe in, um, you know, they didn't believe in turning the other cheek and that sort of thing. If 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 something happened to Rome, Rome went out and exacted revenge, and they and blood did not scare them. And then along came Christianity, and a lot of the Roman blood sports and things actually suffered because of the advent of Christianity. Yeah, the Christians the were against were against the arena. They didn't like the inhumanity of the arena. Exactly. But now in the brutal kind of conditions in which the Roman Empire had grown up and prospered, you know, maybe that kind of thinking weakened the Romans. Think yeah. about that. Well, that's what some <coughs> of the um writers, I think uh, this is what uh, Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, yeah. thought. And it was uh, the last pagan uh, writer of antiquity, a historian, was Zosimus. And yeah. he thought that, you know, they talked about Christianity, that it had changed the nature of the way people believed and acted. 
but if you really study the end of the Roman Empire, you will find that Christianity more acted as a preservative to something that had really rotted away uh, from other causes. And I think if you if you go to uh, Roman history, you'll find that it was despotism yeah. and the decline of the aristocratic ideals of antiquity, um, which were, by the way, you find the same thing today. Um, as you have, you have belief in democracy, and then you have belief in aristocracy. And yeah. the Roman Empire, as the uh, tyranny advanced, or the despotism of the Caesars advanced, you had more um, democratic ideas coming where, where you would suddenly find that uh, Roman emperors were guys that were, you know, lower so ranked soldiers that had come up through the ranks or peasants, whereas uh, that was inconceivable in the early part of the Roman Empire. During the Roman Republic, it was unusual uh, at the time. Uh, people who did rise usually came from the middle class rather than the very lowest classes. I mean, you had, I think there was a Roman emperor who was actually illiterate in the later Roman Empire. Um <laughs> But it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because today we had an aristocratic ethic 200 years ago in the Western world. And, yeah. uh, and what does an arist aristocratic ethic mean? Aristocrat means the best people. And it is yeah. the idea that all men are not really maybe equal. They're created equal or equal before God, but they're not equal in their abilities or their uh, character. Now we're and talking. That, yeah, and so what they said is, look, people who have shown strength of character, families that are intact, you know, an aristocratic family is supposed to be a strong family. That was one of the yeah. things. Aristocrats had strong family structures. They held to their traditions. They they exemplified better behavior. They were the first to make sacrifices and to uh, show the way to others to, to tough it out and uh, do the right thing. That was yeah. the ideal. Of course, it, it, it idea, our ideals don't always prove out. But when we gave up on this aristocratic ideal and we said the common man is best, aristocrats are, are no good, we, just, we didn't say, hey, you know, some people are more qualified um, yes. and should be in charge. <laughs> we said, no, that's elitist. We don't want that anymore. But now look what we have. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is, is that if you go to egalitarianism, you go away from aristocratism, uh, you have a, de a decay in the social material because society is organized. And the mm. ideal in society is not to have some, um, some dirtbag at the top, <laughs> <laughs> not to have a yeah. slug or a, or, or a, a, a ne'er-do-well at the top, but yeah. to have really excellent people, to seek out excellent people and to put excellent people in positions. And let's face it, if a person is not raised in a standard, standards of excellence and higher standards from a, from a young age, with some exceptions, there is a tendency for them not to be excellent when they are, when they are mature. But it is, it is a kind of tradition, a fam, family tradition. Our children are going to go to college. Our children are going to better themselves versus, you know, my, my son's going to run drugs or bootleg or whatever uh, but you know not not that these other professions aren't don't have a certain intelligence that is required but it, it isn't just intelligence it's yes. honor it's tradition it's character it's yes. you know I would be ashamed my family would feel ashamed of me if I misbehaved yeah. and we did we had a very aristocratic politician by the way 
yeah. was born uh, in a log cabin, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. Ah, okay. And he was a self-made aristocratic man. He was aristocratic yeah. in his thoughts, in his language, and his idealism. And, okay. and But you see, Abraham Lincoln was possible because he was living in a society that was permeated with aristocratic notions. Yeah. And it was, ironically, it was... Uh, it was uh, Abraham Lincoln that enunciated a certain egalitarianism. Yes, okay. Now I think misunderstood. But um, well, you know, I think you and I think in the same way on the subject. You know, because it also comes back to all these discussions about intelligence and all that sort of thing. But I find myself sometimes in discussions uh, here in here in South Africa or with other Africans, where people people actually question what this thing is that is called intelligence. And it actually sounds stupid, Jeff, but it's almost as if a lot of, shall we say in inverted commas, modern people dispute the fact that some people are more intelligent than others. Can you believe this? Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I know in ancient times, people at least, when, you know, when when Europeans were still barbarians, even they had the sense to know that there is a difference between people and that some people are better than others. And, you know, this is where the concept of leadership came from and, you know, people rallying around a leader and all that sort of thing. But in Modern times, we seem to be even dumber. Um, yeah, no, and it, it goes to the breakdown of our of our discipline of our system. What people don't realize is that there's also been an attack. Part of the egalitarianism is the denial of the differences between men and women. Yes, and okay. you know this is the, at great peril that I even talk about the subject because <laughs> nowadays, whenever you open your mouth about. Uh, these subjects you get hammered, but you take women in combat, for example. Here's an example. All women can okay. do just the same as men in combat. No. Yes. No, no, no. Uh, I don't, I, you know, there may be some um, very unusual exceptions to this, but in general, uh, women do not do well in combat. It's been tried, the experiment has been tried, and it's failed numerous times. And um, women are biologically different. They have a different yes. body chemistry. They, they don't make uh, muscles as easy as men do, especially in their upper body. Their yeah. bodies are made differently. Their, their yeah. emotions are different than men's emotions. Men do not have the same emotional makeup that women do. You know, Jeff, you, you, you're walking the path of suicide by talking the kind of talk you're talking. But I'm actually 100% behind you. And I'm going to tell you something else. Have you heard of a guy called Mark Rudolph? I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. He he actually he's he's an American guy. Uh, he's his by profession he's an investment banker, but he's actually started writing a blog uh, which is called the No Nonsense Man, and he basically writes things about he's actually a man who's entering that world that Oprah and women used to dominate, which is talking all about relationships between men and women and one of the things he does is he comes at it from a very male point of view and what he's saying 
He's saying things that very few people would even dare to think. But one of the things that he he's pushing and he's pointing out is how and how America has become dominated by women. And he even he even put out a some statistics. I think where he says that the wealth of America, I think sixty percent of America's wealth is now in the hands of women. And he's saying that women control have so much power in your society and control so much that basically he refers to your country, I think, as a gynocracy. <laughs> but um, I, I, I want to tell you where this, where this comes back to warfare because I've sat and thought about this many times myself, Jeff. I think that I remember in past discussions that you and I had where you spoke about the fact that in history there is no female-dominated society that has lasted very long. That at the end of the day, male-dominated societies end up conquering or taking over female-dominated societies. Well, that's and common sense. That's just common sense because men have the natural hormonal chemistry for dominance. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you just a, a few of, add a few of my thoughts. There is ob it is obvious that the male propensity for violence and war is just a type of violence, but where people make the mistake about warfare and warfare in all its forms because warfare is complex. It's not just about running around killing people. No, it's warfare. highly organized, highly Yes, organized. yes. It, it, it is the, the organized and intellectual use of violence to, to attain an end. And if you, if you look at warfare, warfare in the end does have certain benefits. Warfare does allow one country to conquer another or one society to take over another. Now, I sit and look at this, and then I think to myself, if you look at the way that a woman thinks, a woman thinks in a very different way to a man. A man, a man is capable of using violence and bringing structure to that violence, and he has a certain knack for it. Whereas women try to avoid this, and they try and work around it in other ways, and they try to defuse things, and they try to do anything except use violence. And I sit and look at, at, the, at the policies of your country, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the policies in your country are as messed up as they are, because there are women that are involved in this. And, and those women are bringing their female thinking into a, an area where men used to uh, you know, do the thing and make the decision. For example, a couple of weeks back, I believe, some woman, I, I'm not sure in which part of the intelligence world in America it is, but some woman actually said that American veterans are a threat to the security of America. Yeah, that was uh, the, the <coughs> Homeland Security Secretary. Yes. And Jeff, I sit and ask myself whether the fact that women in your society are, are or moving into all sorts of positions of power, how much of that is affecting 
the military ability of your country to defend itself at an intelligence level and also at a you know at an army level yeah well i think more fundamental is the point that freud would have made and i'm not endorsing freud's ideas but freud understood something perhaps because he came from the 19th century ultimately uh he's you know where do children get their self-discipline from? Where do they learn the rules from? Where do they know yeah. that this is bad and this is good? They learn it from their dads. Because yeah. dad's the one that punishes. Dad's the one that, 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 that dispenses discipline. It's not that mom mm. doesn't always do it, but, but it's generally dad has that. Mm. You know, dad's going to, you know, wait till your father gets home. You know, it was a yeah. thing I heard back in the 60s from my mom. It wasn't that my mom was going to spank me. I was going to get the belt when my dad got home. Yeah, and, um, and I have friends who've told me, "Hey, you know, if it wasn't for my dad, be, me being afraid of my dad, I would be in prison now. I wouldn't be a good citizen <laughs> because I was okay. I was full of mischief when I was a teenager. You know, that's what they'll tell you. Um, and so the, the we we have had in the United States an attack on fatherhood, an attack on masculinity. There's no question about it. Um, no fault divorce. You know, most yeah. mostly initiated by women." Women decide yes. they want to, you know, get a better They want man. out. They want out. In America, we have a permissive society now. Yes. And the permissive society really goes along with mom saying it's okay, never mind what dad says. You know, okay. We're not going to have strict rules anymore. Yes. And, um, <clears throat> and in fact, all the penalties now are on dad. If you have a no-fault no divorce, means the, the father basically doesn't have his wife or kids with him, but he has to support them anyway. In wow. Distance. And the, the wife can go off and do what she wants. Uh, it means that uh, men are destroyed, men are demasculated, uh, courts suddenly can intervene in families and in family matters. Um, it's, it's really um, very di disturbing what's going on. And people think, oh, well, no, this is good because, you know, women have been oppressed all this time. Well, wait a minute. No. Men have to work to support their family. Isn't that oppression? Yes. By the same yes. rule that women have children and take care of them, men being at work all day, sp spending money to make a nice home and to make their uh, woman secure and their children secure, that's somehow, you know, doesn't count as some kind of service. service. Yes. You know, so it, it um, you know, and obviously there's, uh, there's been, there's bad wives and there's bad husbands and there's, you know, there's bad family situations. Of course, we know the family's not an ideal institution. It's just a necessary <clears> one. <throat> and we've destroyed it here. and We've destroyed the order, the internal order within the soul of people by upsetting the division of labor between man and woman. And we've created oh. a... I mean, I can't believe these two female senators from California, Diane yeah. Feinstein and uh, Barbara Boxer. I can't believe them. Yeah. They, to, to me, when they make a pronouncement on almost any political subject, I want to grind my teeth. Uh-huh. Tell me a bit more. Well, what, what do they do that irritates you? I don't know them that well. I've heard their well, names, course, but I'm not following them. Every, I mean, take the global warming thing. You know, they're all for, you know, uh, all these environmental causes. They're all against uh, nuclear weapons, just instinctively against nuclear weapons. And they, okay. they, would, not, they would not be breathing. They would not be alive if it wasn't for the fitness yes. of the nuclear weapons sitting in American uh, yes. missiles and submarines and silos. Okay, but 
but you see that that brings me to that argument about women you're you're pointing out there that they will just instinctively jump against nuclear uh, a nuclear bomb because it's a nuclear bomb they will not even think more logically or in the military state of mind and and well, they, the, would, they would basically say well that's that's that primitive stupid yes. masculine thing about war yes. well, you know men they just want to fight you know what's wrong with them yeah. uh you know what no. uh, believe it or not you talk to most soldiers they don't really want to be in a war especially the ones that have been in one yes but exactly. um but it's um it's, it's an, a necessary evil it, it is an evil and it is a necessary evil uh there's yes. no way really around it because there are really uh backward primitive uh i could only say reptilian regimes in this world <laughs> that would but, exterminate people i mean you you live in africa i mean i mean tell us about some of the where they're done by uh, you're next to zimbabwe well you were born yes. in the country yes. you know you know to tell us what jeff, how many people are being starved to death there right now jeff just yesterday just yesterday a friend was talking to me and he was telling me that um, a military officer from South Africa that's been sent on a peacekeeping mission to to the DRC, which is formerly Zaire, which used to be an American ally at one time, that the guy was showing him military photographs of cannibalism. And, uh, he, and this is in 2009. He said to me, they're, they're, not allowed to sh they're not allowed to give me copies of this. It's not allowed to be shown in public. But the guy was showing him what they were seeing right there in Africa. Jeff, the fact of the matter is, and I've lived in a third world society my whole life, I can tell you right now, Jeff, that when you are dealing with, shall we call it primitive or uncivilized people, but actually it applies to everybody. Yes. If you are dealing with anybody and you allow that person to get away with certain things, then that person will start thinking that he is better than you. And once he starts perceiving that you will not do this and not do that, he starts looking at you as if you are weak. In Robert Mugabe's case, Robert Mugabe has managed to remain in power in that country because he does not flinch at the sight of blood. He does not flinch at this at torture, and I'm talking Jeff, the most extreme kinds of torture that you can even begin to imagine. My my per, my personal friend, school friend, Rob Ellis, who now runs a blog called The Bearded Man. Rob Ellis told me that when, that when he was a policeman, he he interviewed witnesses to genocide. He said that Robert Mugabe's soldiers were taking people and they were taking women and they were thrusting their bayonets into the women through their private parts and they were bayoneting them to death from inside them. Can you believe that? These people are like savages, my friend. And Robert Mugabe is a good Marxist-Leninist. Exactly. And Jeff, as a good Marxist-Leninist, he does not care about torture about torturing people. I I have got so many pictures of black people who've been beaten. Jeff, when they say they beat a person, they'll beat a person to a pulp. They will they will 
pull the, they will burn them on their feet. They will rip out their toenails. These people really have got no feeling whatsoever of this in the slightest. You know, there's there's not one ounce of humanity in these people. They are as savage. They are more savage than most barbarians in ancient history. And I got to tell you, Jeff, the only reason those people are are still in control of that country is because there is nobody else strong enough and able to use violence in controlled violence, warfare, able to intelligently use violence to counter their violence. And Robert Mugabe is a, is an example where the only way to, to win is through violence. The warfare and violence has, is the ultimate game that you can play in, in human society. And the only way to counter it is by matching it and beating the other guy at his own game. And that is why with piracy and crime and all these other things, if you do not come and you do not actually set some boundaries, in other words, play the role of dad, if you do not come to these tribes and these nations and set some boundaries in a firm way, those people will run amok. And you must, and your country must be very careful because of this terrorism and the Middle East and these pirates and things. The reason piracy has gone completely out of control is because the owners of the owners of the shipping line. I, I saw this on a very interesting documentary, Jeff. The owners of shipping lines have, for the last 20 years and more, whenever their ships have been captured by pirates. They have gone and they've paid them ransoms. And once they started paying them ransoms, the pirates came back for more. And then the pirates discovered that you can make more money by capturing the crew than by capturing the ship. So then they capture people because they know they're going to make money out of people. And apparently there is a law that none of these um, merchant marine ships may carry weapons. And so because they don't carry weapons, they can't defend themselves. So any pirates... Jeff, it is, it is so ridiculous. I saw, and you know, they keep all this, all this um, hush-hush. The one thing I saw was there was an American, an American liner, which was attacked by a little boat. It's, it's almost ridiculous in the, way that it, in, in the way it works. Here is a cruise liner off the coast of Africa, and it is attacked by a little motorboat where the guys are armed with some AK-47s and RPG-7 rocket launchers. And these guys are, are shooting at a, at a cruise liner with their weapons, and here's this advanced huge ship, and it's not able to defend itself in any meaningful way. Eventually, the ship outran them, and they used some kind of sound mechanism against the pirates. But that sound mechanism isn't going to stop those pirates from targeting another ship. You know, this is, this is where I believe in fighting fire with fire. You know, if they had one machine gun on, that, on board that ship, and they shot those pirates there and then, those pirates would not be out there bothering anybody ever again. And if, they, and if their bodies... Wash up on the shore. You know, let me tell you another thing about the psychology of these, these third world people. 
if they go, these third world people are quite hard because their life is quite tough. And if and they be, start looking on on their on their hard life as giving them greater strength than you. And if if they use violence against you and you do not respond in kind, then they look on you as they look on it as a sign of weakness. And once they perceive there's a weakness, and once they perceive that you are limiting yourself in some way, they start beginning to feel superior to you. And then they carry on playing that game even more. You're actually encouraging lawlessness by responding in such a soft way. That is where the Romans and the British and all these others, they were able to bring about law and order. Why? Because the Romans brought law and order in the most absolutely ruthless way imaginable. <clears throat> and, you know, humans haven't changed. And, and if you play with the terrorists and you play with these, these pirates, you'll see it's just going to get worse. With me is Jan Lamprecht. He is in South Africa. <laughs> I am Jeff Nyquist. This is the strategiccrisis.com podcast, and we're talking about, of course, the breakdown of order across the world. I was going to ask you... Uh, about something um, that I talked with with somebody else, I was just mentioning this uh, environmentalism and climate gate. But there was also another topic that I thought we might touch on, and that's yeah. um, this uh, this rumor that uh, came out of Russia that oh. Putin is being reported to. That uh, it's been reported to Putin allegedly. Here's what the story is, and I don't know if this story is true or not, but yeah. it's. Um, it's one that uh, Chuck Baldwin put forward, uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin, on December 11th. <coughs> Is Obama really preparing for civil war? According to an obscure report in the European Union Times, that sounds like a respectable publication, Russian military analysts are reporting to Prime Minister Putin that U.S. President Barack Obama has issued an order to his northern command's top leader, U.S. Air Force General Gene Renard, to begin immediately increasing his military forces to 1 million troops by January 30th, 2010. And what these reports warn is an expected outbreak of civil war within the United States before the end of winter. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't like those kind of stories because yes. um, the Russians really, coming out of Russia, the Russians really want a civil war here. This is something yes. they'd love to see happen because... In a civil war, our new <clears throat> nuclear deterrent would probably go completely defunct. We would be totally yes. vulnerable. They could support the side that was willing to uh, toady to them. Yes. And we would end up with a communist puppet government in Washington at the end of the day if they supported yes. the side that was willing to take on that role. You know, Jeff, I've been watching a, a bunch of news reports, and this was just one of the ones that I forwarded to you. But in the last couple of months, I've been watching a number of so-called analyses coming out of Russia, and I've, I've seen them in Pravda and so forth. And all of these analyses are about the breakup of America and the, and the division of America and so forth. And, you know, when I sit and look back on it, I say to myself, you know, this is really what the Russians would love. They would love this. They, they would like, there's nothing they would like more than to see Americans in the streets shooting at each other. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's famous, this Igor Panarin, who is 
is a former KGB officer and analyst and teaches at the, uh, he's in the Faculty of International Relations of the Diplomatic Academy of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia. And he was on the news here within the last year, more than once, saying that the United States was going to break down. And he had, uh, he had California here where I am as being part of the new Chinese sphere of influence in North America. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think what, I'll tell you what I've noticed uh, in this country too is, in this country, you've had the communists who've come in in a more sophisticated way, and then you get the right wing who react, but they react from their gut. And, you know, if you react in the wrong way, if you if you try and play this game of war and overthrow, and you do it in a stupid way, you're going to fail. And um, when I look at some of these things, like uh, about Obama and, and, you know, obviously Obama is not popular among the conservatives and the right wing in your country. And to me, that kind of so-called analysis seems to be very inflammatory. It's like they want this to get to like your militia type. They would like to see these sort of rednecks grab their pitchforks and their rifles and start shooting people, and they'd like that because the rednecks would not only lose, but it would create a lot of animosity and division. And and what was remember Waco and and what happened at Waco? Those kinds of things simmer on for years, and people, you know, and and those things are divisive. And to me, that is what what these news reports are trying to actually foment. They're trying to foment a paranoia among conservatives in America. I mean, the fact that Obama sent 30,000 troops to to Afghanistan, your country is struggling to get even 200,000 troops going in other countries. You know, where do you still have the resources and interest in in raising up a million troops to fight in, in your own country? Uh, I don't think I don't see that as being a realistic thing. No, well, we do have a political division here, and uh, I don't know if you are able to see Fox News where you are. No. But if you can compare Fox News to some of the other mainstream media, you see this ideological division in a completely different view of the country, where Fox News is the number one uh, news network, cable news network, with a huge uh, share of the audience, because that's where all the conservatives go, because there's nowhere else for them to go. And yes, then the other networks all competing for the, the, the liberal, more liberal viewers. But it's not like news anymore. It's like news from a particular ideological position, um, especially on those that are left of center. I mean, they're not just reporting news anymore. It's news with a wink and a sneer at everything that they disagree with, uh, as if it wasn't sort of a more snide version of that before it really was. The, uh, the rise of socialist really fanatical socialist ideology here is, is, is actually quite shocking. Not, you know, not Jeff, unexpected, though. I must tell you, um, I sometimes, you know, my perceptions are perceptions from afar, so they could be wrong, but it does appear to me as if the, the political division in your country is getting strong, getting increasing. Yes. As, as if the left and the right are being... Especially the left is becoming more intolerant. Well, yes, and they always had that sort of tendency to begin with. 
uh, it was, remember, 100 years ago, everybody would be considered a far right-wing reactionary by today's yes. standards. Everybody exactly. 100 years ago. So, obviously, there was a lot of tolerance among all those right-wing reactionaries for this <laughs> left-wing to have emerged and taken power in the country. Yes. So, um, so this, uh, this, uh, this uh, sort of idea of the conservatives, I mean, everything that more conservative people think and believe is sort of based on social experience of hundreds of years of history. And then, yes. look, this is what our grandparents did. It worked for them. We should keep with it. Uh, yes. With the laws, with the political system, the constitution, the way we raise our families, all of that. Uh, yes. The liberals, you know, say, no, that's not good. We can make a more perfect society. Of course, how do you know what's more perfect when you have no social experience trying what you're trying and then exactly. everything we know tells us that it's not going to work, everything we know from real history? That's, yes. the, that's the way I break down the debate be between liberals and conservatives here. But it really is much more radical. They're not really liberals. No. Um, they're really... <laughs> I guess you'd say socialists, social democrats, and communists. Uh, you know, Jeff, I have a, a good friend of mine is actually a true liberal here in South Africa. He went to university. He studied biology and so forth. And he is a liberal in the true sense of what a liberal should be, which means he's open to free market. He's open to democracy. And... When I have discussed with him what liberalism in South Africa is, because there is a small, there is a, a smaller portion of the of white South Africa that was liberal even during apartheid, and when I discussed with him, you know, the the like proper intellectual definition of liberalism, as it is here and as it used to be, it is very different, in fact, to what is called liberalism in your country. Because in your country, people still talk about liberalism, but the kinds of words that are coming out of their mouths are not liberal. You know, liberalism is free market, but in your country, liberals are talking socialism. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's again, the socialism dictate this language to us. You know, it's the, it's the abuse of the meaning of words. It's, yes. uh, it's victory by semantics. Uh, this is something, you know, St Stalin was interested in semantics at the end of his life. Uh -huh. um, and all of these Russian um, strategies involved semantics, just like George Orwell wrote in 1984, where they had the Newspeak Dictionary, which uh -huh. kept getting smaller every year. They kept <clears throat> eliminating words. You can't say this word. It's not a word anymore. So to limit people's vocabulary so that they cannot express certain ideas. Well, if you take away the word liberal and you make it mean socialist, then you yes. can't talk about liberal issues anymore unless you're talking socialism. So they've eliminated a whole way of talking about, you know, basic core issues. Because I want to tell you something. I put out a story the other day. It was a story that, that appeared that, that was about bringing Marxism to the American curriculum. And... In the story, they, they had some video footage, and I actually looked at the video footage, and there was this young, attractive teacher, an American woman, and she was talking to, to, some, uh, to some TV show host. And this, Ameri and this teacher was saying, oh, but you know, you know uh, capitalism isn't like good enough. Uh, you need to get the system to the point where 
the doctors and the nurses are running the hospital. And then I think to myself, but hold on a second, I've heard that before. That is what the the liberation movements in, in Africa were talking about because that is the kind of stuff that the Russian and Chinese communists were teaching them. And here you are in 2009 in America, and, and here, you know, here you are in, in a country that's got 5% of the population of the world, but the biggest economy in the world. And you're turning around and you're saying, oh my goodness, this system called capitalism isn't working. Uh, you know, first of all, you've got to be a complete moron to actually say that kind of thing. And then, and then here she is talking about these concepts that come straight out of Marxism. And I think to myself, you know, I, I can't believe that I'm watching first world intelligent educated people in the most scientifically advanced country in the world. And they're talking about this nonsense and actually taking it seriously. Oh, no. If you go to any of our universities, these people are dominant. I mean, when I was in graduate school more than 20 years ago, my career was ended because I ran against these people, and these people destroyed me. They had all the, they just would run over anyone who disagreed with them, who was, you know, I wasn't a full professor. I was just a graduate student in a, a PhD program. Yeah. And if you if you don't go along with them, and the older professors even, they would shut up. They didn't want to get into a pissing contest with them, so to speak. So it was like you had no organized resistance to the Marxists, and the Marxists were organized. They supported each other. They helped each other. They attacked common targets. Um, and so it's uh, it's their virulency and their consistency in what they're about give them special power. And even though they're a minority in the country, they have this enormous influence all out of proportion to their numbers. And this is the thing people don't understand. Politics is done by minorities. Organized minorities make everything happen in politics. And unless yeah. you organize to oppose communism, communism will win. Yes. That's just it. Because communism is organized. Yes. Well, it doesn't matter I'm... if 99% of the people don't believe in it. The 1% that do, if they're organized and no one organizes against them, they will get you. Yes. Well, I think that that the kind of debate that goes on in your country these days is truly scary. You know, even even your president, you know, President Obama, I listened to some of the stuff he talked. And, you know, I mean, he's really got so many sort of Marxist, leftist links in his thinking. You know, he doesn't even, I doubt he even knows the first thing about the free market. You know, these people have really been brought up on a diet of leftist thinking. Yes, that's a good way to describe it. When you're raised in this academic environment, they use ridicule <clears throat> against uh, an anti-Marxist or anti-communist views so that the very worst thing you could be, and you would be ostracized for being it, would be anti-communist. That's only yeah. those nuts and reactionaries over there that, that aren't enlightened enough to realize how really valuable Marx's project was. Yeah. Um, you know, and they all say, well, we know Marx wasn't right about everything and stuff, but he's a good point of departure. He's a good starting point for our work. <laughs> you know, you know this Jeff, is the way they talk. I can't, even, I can't even believe that Karl Marx is regarded as an intellectual because to me, uh, you know, 
there was nothing intellectual about the guy. The guy had no intellectual honesty. Um, you know, this was just, um, he was just writing some propaganda in order to start wars. That was, that's well, as simple as it was. He dictator of Germany. And he thought that okay. if, he, if he, he thought maybe this workers' revolutionary movement was the way for him to be it. And, uh, of course, it's a vehicle. It was created yes. by Marx as a vehicle for himself becoming powerful. Uh, it became a vehicle for others who recognized its potential. And, of course, it's, uh, it, it's because these guys postured themselves as so knowingly and with such elegant language at times. <clears throat> and really what it is is that people who hate uh, whether it's they hate their father or they hate the way things are done, they hate Christianity perhaps, they hate Western civilization, they have a grudge, they have envy, they're going to be inclined to accept Marxist ideas. In fact, the more and deeper your character flaws, the more likely yeah. you are to be a Marxist. Chief, I will not differ with you on that. And and to me, it's still it's it's absolutely amazing that you cannot find a single country in this world where any of these any of these loony ideas have actually really helped the people. And no. yet, and yet, in the first world, where people have benefited so much from logical, rational thinking, people are opening themselves up to the same kind of trash. That black Africans, when they, when they moved away from colonialism, you know, those blacks had no education. They were living in primitive societies. They liked what they were hearing when communists came and talked to them. You would think that in your country, where people have intelligence, where they have a strong history, and where you've had so much success for so long, you would think that your people would be more resistant to choosing, you know, to to this kind of message, and yet I'm absolutely gobsmacked at how many people uh, are are falling for this. Yeah, well, people are quite stupid, and the fact that someone gets an education just means they're a stupid person with a diploma. <laughs> it's not going to change them. People don't change that much. They can become more sophisticated in what they are, but they are what they are. Yeah. That's why family structure and the kind of moral orientation people get when they're young is decisive. Because if yes. you get a spoiled generation of people who are misfits at heart, a criminal is a misfit. And so a Marxist as a political criminal is a, is a misfit as well. And if you look at Lenin or Stalin or Marx, these were all misfits. And they all had a kind of criminal psychology. And the system that they built was a criminal system. Um, in the United States, the real social degradation that's happened from non-communist causes, from our being spoiled by the good things that we have, I mean, really, your character is more in danger from being spoiled and from permissiveness than it is from hardship. And this was a yeah. great problem with the West. And this is why, by the way, when the Cuban Revolution happened and communism took it over, Cuba was the most advanced economy and society in Latin America. Why did yeah. it happen to them? Because 
being more advanced makes you more vulnerable to this. And actually, the United States is perhaps more vulnerable to communism now than even Russia or China, where communism is, is really dominant uh, politically, although in Russia it's hidden. In China it's um, official. The system is official yes. communist. In America, you will, not, you will find more Marxists in the United States probably concentrated than in any other country. Well, some European countries do, but you know, this, it, it is an astonishing thing. And what you just said seems common sense. How could these people raised here, knowing what a great life this provides, curse the system and want to yes. make this change? They got to be idiots. Yeah. And of course, yes. they're they're fools. They're a special kind of fool. Um, it's and it isn't <clears throat> intelligence. It's character. They are misfits. They are drawn to this. They can't help themselves. They believe in it. It's sort of like a religion that people of yes. a certain kind of background and character cannot resist. Wasn't that, wasn't that Winston Churchill who said something like, if you're young and you don't believe in communism, you're a fool. And if you're old and you believe in communism, you're a fool. Something along yeah, those I lines. I don't think he used the word communism. I think he, I think he meant social democrat or, or labor, the things that the labor party believed in. But, um, but yeah, of course. Um, but I, I, and of course, the situation is, is that you know, when you become more sophisticated, truly sophisticated in your thinking and in your understanding of economics and politics, the thing that, that suddenly occurs to you is that all the evil corporations, all that evil in the world to fill our stores with good things no, on that's... the shelves. And, and, and here's the thing that, that gets me. Okay, supposing the corporate leaders are evil, what's the worst they're going to do to you? Mistreat you yeah. as an employee? Maybe cheat somebody in a business deal? Well, yeah. all, all of a sudden, because they're so evil, you're giving all this power to the government. What's the worst thing the government can do? Put you in Make prison? You. Put you before a firing squad? Yeah. I'd rather well have said. evil corporations than an evil government, evil, all-powerful government. I want to tell you uh, something that, that I read in, a, in, an, in an economics book. An economist in, in Britain wrote a, wrote, wrote a piece, and in this piece he mentioned that one day, some some official from the Soviet Union arrived in Britain, and he was talking to somebody in Britain. And then he asked a question. He said to them, "By the way, who is in charge of the supply of bread to London?" And so the British said, "Well, there's nobody." And this Soviet guy was completely amazed. He said, "How can you?" not have somebody in charge of the, the supply of bread to London. And so they said to him, well, you know, our system, our, our capitalist system takes care of this. And what this economist went on to say was, he said, you know, capitalism is truly the most incredible system ever invented because without having any kind of organization whatsoever, there are people out there in society who are planning things and who, who are planning products that they are going to be putting into shops and you are going to buy some of those products. But you don't even know it's coming, but they are busy planning it and they'll have it ready for you. And that is the amazing thing about capitalism is you don't need to tell any, you don't need to organize it. It organizes itself. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. actually... And in fact, a, nobody invented it. 
it evolved historically from traditions yes. of the Middle Ages. And and but Jeff, you know, even in barbar even in ancient times, weren't people in many ways just capitalists in one way or another. I mean they didn't have a particular system, but people knew how to barter, how to trade. One person would buy or barter something from another. That's the way society has always been. And nobody nobody regarded any of this as evil until Karl Marx came along and said this was evil. Right. And, yeah. And, and this whole business of corporations being evil, like you say, it's, this is nothing. This is, this is peanuts. Well, uh, in the economic history of man, I, I, I will have to say that there, there, there were attitudes in the ancient world and in the medieval world coming from the church and the ancient aristocracy that did look down on economic activity and okay. did think that, for example, laws against usury, you know, yes. that not allowing people to, to loan or borrow money at interest. This was okay. considered evil in many parts of history. So there have always been um, kind of prejudices that have existed against uh, what we call modern capitalism. Okay, but that would be against banking more than well, and more than more than normal to, trade. Yeah, it applied to other things too, um, and of course they had they had their controls. But basically, uh, any economy that's above the Stone Age level is a capitalist economy, including the so-called in the so-called communist countries. Because if you practice true communism, you would be in the Stone Age. Yes, that's just what communism really signified. And that was pointed out by Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian economist, back, ah, yes. I think, in the 20s or 30s in a book called Socialism. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he wrote a book about it, and that's basically, when you read the book and you come to the end, that's basically the conclusion, that there is no such thing as a socialist economy unless you're in a hunter-gathering Stone Age society. Okay. Uh, because any well, kind of existence of property means trade, means uh, you know a system of... Um, of, uh, you know, you give me that and I give you this, and yes. accumulation of wealth and property. Yes. You know, all these concepts, there are some concepts, like we were talking about people, there are some kinds of concepts that are so dangerous. You know, the idea that everybody, everybody must be equal in economic terms, or that everybody is equal in, a, in intelligence and capability. You know, those are such dangerous concepts, actually, because it completely destroys personal initiative. If you look at what drives people, people are innately driven. They are driven by a certain amount of greed, if you can call it that. But people, people want to get some, you know, people expect a certain kind of fairness. There's a certain type of concept that's innate in humans where people feel, if I worked harder than you, then I deserve more than you. Mm-hmm. And and this is common to almost everybody everywhere. And um, I was even watching an interesting science documentary about experiments with children, where they had these little children, and they, and they would allow, they would give one child a bunch of chocolates, a bunch of chocolate coins. And then that child has to decide how many of these chocolate coins 
he or she is going to give to another child. So then the child will give just a little bit. The child might get 10 and decide to give two to the other. Then the other little child gets to decide whether to accept those, co those coins or not. And if the other child decides no, then the transaction is nullified. So what inevitably happened was these little kids would keep as many of these, um, as many of these little coins for themselves and give as few as possible to the other. And then the other child would by nature reject the transaction. Then when they come back and they do this again, then the, the, the first child will have learned the lesson and the distribution will be much more fair. But the point is that people have certain kinds of things inside of them and, and even from a young age, they expect certain things. And there are some things that are part of human nature and you're not going to change it. And one of those things is that if somebody does something, he wants something in return as a reward for what he did. And that is the beauty about capitalism. Capitalism rewards people. It allows people to make as much money as they, as they can in whatever way they can. And that is why the system is so successful because people, everybody goes out and he does what he, he, he makes, he makes the most of what, what is resources yeah. and intelligence well, allowing? We're not equal in, in what we do. If I lounge around all day, I'm not equal to the man who works hard all day. Yes. In that. Um, and there's a profound moral uh, implication in this, this anti-egalitarian take on human action and human nature. If people have variable intelligence and skills and work ethics and character, if all men are not equal, in fact, yes. maybe before God they are, maybe they are created equal at first, but they somehow become unequal in the actual world. If all men are not equal, well, the doctrine that says that they are also implies that all actions are equal. If you say all men are equal, then all actions are equal, then all deeds are equal, then there's no evil or good. There's no yes. good actions or evil, because if all men are equal, then that means all that they do is equal, and that there's no good or bad actions either. So it has yes. a, a moral, a profound moral lesson involved. So that all of a sudden people can say, well, it doesn't matter if I do this or I do that, I'm still equal to everything. You know what is missing in these discussions, Jeff, is when you get all these communists and socialists and those types coming and talking about these ideas, what they are forgetting is that most of the world is not successful. And most societies are not very successful. And that some societies have become exceptionally successful. And it's through specific methods that those people have become successful. And, the, you know, to me, the key issue here is, you know, I can have any idea I want, but whether my idea will work in practice is a whole different kettle of fish. And nobody comes out and talks about how realistic or unrealistic these ideas are. And the fact that some societies have succeeded, such as your society, you know, that says to me that your society has been doing something right. And your society should actually be more conservative because whatever formula has made you great is keeping you there. 
And if you make changes, chances are you could make a change that'll actually send you backwards. Well, I'm afraid those changes have already been made. Yeah. And to, to such an extent that there is no real, I mean, I look at it as a political sociologist. We're going to hit the wall because we're traveling uh, figuratively at 150 miles an hour toward the wall, and we're only about 100 feet away from the wall. And it's not enough time to, to even apply the brakes, even if there was anyone with the will to apply the brakes. Yes. And that's just what we see in terms of our country disarming, in terms of the disintegration of the family, the permissiveness, the uh, the rottenness of, of our political leaders. I mean, they're not leaders even. I mean, how, how are they <laughs> even leaders? How do they compare them no. themselves to Lincoln or, 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 or Washington or the founding fathers? Yes. They are, they are the, they're completely antithetical to everything that was great and honest and good and honorable in those people. Absolutely, Jeff. Absolutely. And I, I just wince just to see them on TV. It just, it's, it's a shameful display every time we have a presidential campaign in this country. It's just a shame. Yes. You know, Jeff, there is no leadership anymore, and people have completely forgotten what leadership really is. It's, it's just gone. But, you know... I still think that, that no matter how sophisticated people are, in the future there must be new leaders, real leaders. There's got to come a time, and a real leader will not be somebody who's going to just toe the line. Real leaders in ancient times and in past times were people who went against the grain and people who were willing to put their lives on the line, and they had to have real ability in order to survive because the odds were stacked against them. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, Chesty Puller is a famous Marine Corps hero in the United States in World War II. He fought at Guadalcanal and Peleliu, fought in yeah. Korea against the Communist Chinese. Um, and he once said to his officers when, when they, uh, they hesitated in battle, he said, um, we don't need commanders. We got plenty of commanders. We need leaders. And what is a leader? <laughs> a leader is the person who's up front who takes the bullet first. Yes. Yes. Now you're talking. Yeah. And those are the kinds of people that, that the Western world needs and that your country will be needing, for sure. For sure. Well, Jan, it's uh, been great to have you. We've been uh, going now for an hour and a half. This has been the strategiccrisis.com podcast. I am Jeff Nyquist of strategiccrisis.com. Jan Lemprecht, why don't you give your uh, your particulars on your website yes. so people can visit? Yes, my my website is www.africancrisis.co.za, and I will be launching some other websites in the near future. I would like to uh, also uh, have a website dedicated to the American crisis because you know, when I look at all the problems we've had in Africa, I see so many similarities. You know, I, I just could never believe that that, um, that your country could ever start having the same kinds of problems we had. And uh, it looks to me as if your troubles have only just begun. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right, Jan. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll do it again sometime.